one of the things that was plain to me at the beginning of the pandemic was, you know, what I was seeing a lot of on transportation Twitter, and really it wasn't just confined to transportation Twitter. It was really whatever your agenda was pre-pandemic, there was a kind of this moment where everybody was doubling down on those agendas and saying things like, if we don't take advantage of this moment, then we will have blown our opportunity to, you know, uh, save the planet, um, you know, uh, prevent gentrification, whatever your agenda was. And I found that kind of opportunism to be extremely off-putting because I felt like it missed a very clear signal to all of us to be still for a minute and think deeply about the kinds of things that we want to see in our city and why. And what we observed during the, you know, we looked at a, a number of different pieces of data, including um, street light data, which is comprehensive transportation data, our own ATSAC data, our counts, uh, some of Metro's data, some qualitative data. And we began to piece together a story about what was going on um, in our city during COVID. And what we observed is that when you teased apart the travel trends, um, we looked at it through an income of class. So we looked at it by income and we looked at it through a, a, um, a lens of, of race. So we looked at what was happening for black and brown communities specifically. And what we observed is that in those communities, people's um, vehicle miles traveled were actually increasing over the course of the pandemic. And we don't have real data because um, we don't get data from a lot of private and uh, companies and technology platforms. But our nickel theory is that a lot of people in those communities lost their jobs because they were supporting either retail or um, entertainment or tourism. And, um, and then they had to go take what was left, which were jobs in the gig economy, driving for Instacart, Amazon, um, Whole Foods, whoever. Um, and so when I look at that kind of data, what strikes me is that the problems that we need to solve are really directly related to how we connect people to opportunity, to income, and how we, um, and how we do that through mobility. And while transforming our city overnight into um, you know, a, very, uh, a place that has you know, a lot of protected bike lanes and bus lanes, is something that I've worked on really hard my whole career. I also felt like um, we needed to take a step back and think more creatively about the actual problems that we were trying to solve. There's a quote that I, I give pretty frequently, which is that um, in LA County, you can reach about 12 times as many jobs in an hour by car that you can in an hour by transit. And that has to do with decades of racist land use decisions and racist infrastructure decisions. And in order to close that gap without um, buying everybody a vehicle, yes, we need to build bus lanes, yes, we need to build bike lanes, but there are a whole bunch of other things that we need to do um, with respect to the direct deployment and delivery of services into those communities um, so that people have access to opportunity. And I think that you know, organizations like Streets for All um, are filled with non-traditional thinkers, iconoclasts, people who are not comfortable with the status quo, 
And these are exactly the kind of communities where I want to see more of that creative conversation happening. Now, directly to your question about infrastructure, um, during, the, the, um, during the last several months, we actually have built um, considerably more lanes of, of um, complete streets or bike and bus infrastructure than we have um, in the recent past. And that has to do more with the fact that we've been doing the outreach, we've been in community, and we had an opportunity to build those projects quickly and uh, cheaply because there was a lull in the traffic that was out there. But skipping past that moment of being in community and hearing from community um, isn't necessarily something that, um, that I was comfortable doing or that I had a mandate to do. So the, the mandate part is, is interesting. And um, I wanted to ask you, I, I don't think everyone is always aware of the way LA works. You know, we have a, a weaker mayor system here than other cities and we have 15 council members that often decide what does and doesn't happen. And um, as general manager of our Department of Transportation, uh, how do you think about that? How do you navigate that? How do we get to a citywide bike network, for example, if it crosses through four council districts and one council member doesn't want it? How, how do you, what do you do about that? Well, I think that so far, when it comes to programmatic decisions, my observation is that um, the, the city council seems to be uh, aligned in disallowing individual council members to opt out of programs. So Recycla is an example, right? Where the city was trying to change over the way we did uh, waste collection and recycling. Um, and you couldn't allow an individual council district to opt out. Micromobility is another example, right? There are, there are council members on the city council who wanted a carve out of their entire district for the scooter and bike program that LADOT was, um, was creating and, and regulating and overseeing. And the council was aligned in saying, we can't do that. We cannot set a precedent where individual council offices can opt out of programmatic um, services that the city provides. That attitude does not seem to extend to infrastructure. Anytime we're touching something physical in a council district, um, the council has a completely different uh, posture, which is that if the street is in somebody's district, it is considered their dirt, and they get, uh, they get veto power. So you can see that um, in the, the, um, the bus only lanes uh, that, you know, proceed and they're, they're solid and then they drop off in Beverly Hills and they disappear in Condo Canyon because individual jurisdictions and council members opted out of those projects. And until we have a change in um, either the way that council districts defer to one another when it comes to those kinds of decisions or we have an upstream effort like the one you're describing um, to uh, proactively um, endorse and support candidates who are going to make, you know, be willing to push forward with projects that um, may have impacts and may create some churn in the community, then I don't know that we're going to be able to, I don't know that we're going to see a big change in, in that reality. And so my um, perspective has been, Look, there are lots of places in Los Angeles where, you know, we do have supportive council members 
and where we have large neighborhoods in wholly contained inside a single council district where we should focus on build out of a network inside those neighborhoods because individual projects which is kind of where we still are um, are pretty are pretty good you have to build, you have to start somewhere but it's really that network that's the secret sauce in getting that big jump in the number of people who feel comfortable um, getting on a bike or uh, you know or using using some form of mobility that's not um, their their vehicles and so you know there's plenty of work positive work that we can do there while we play the long game of trying to change the composition and the posture of the city council. Has it been frustrating? <laughs> what do you think, Michael? I don't want to put words in your mouth. <laughs> I mean, okay. yeah, it's, it's challenging without question, but you know, I made a decision um, a, a long time ago that I was going to work inside a system. And so that decision um, requires me to make certain choices and to deal with certain realities and and to deal with um, you know the those kinds of those kinds of roadblocks they they are a fact they were a fact in San Francisco where I worked before they were a fact in Oakland where I worked before that they're a fact in um, in a lot of places and if I were to um, spend too much energy on those individual frustrations, I would never be able to, to get anything done. Um, and so, yeah, it's frustrating, but it's not personal. And so I, you know, got to pick it up and, and keep it moving um, and look for champions who are willing to support taking risks on how streets are designed. A truth in most places I've worked is that people in neighborhoods and communities are generally willing to sort of accept congestion. They sort of don't understand exactly why we have congestion and they sort of accept it as a fact of life um, until and you make a change on the street. And then the minute you change the street, you own that congestion. It's your problem. And there are, um, I've witnessed a lot of different uh, electric and policymakers in my career, and they handle that moment um, in a wide variety of ways. But it is, in, it is the, the pressure that is applied to them is real. Um, the frustrations are also real. However, um, in my experience, they are also temporary. And so the question is, do those elected leaders have the support they need to sustain themselves through those challenging peaks of the sort of change curve? That's a great segue into our first audience question. Can you see our see the screen? Yes. Okay. So um, this is near and dear to my heart because I worked really hard on this and we found out last night it wasn't moving forward. Yeah, I saw that. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think Jonah's Well, it's question... not moving forward today. Sure. It's not moving forward in the next two years and we'll see who gets in in 2022 when Paul Koretz is termed out. Um, but... I think this is a very valid question because, and maybe this is just the personality of individual council members, but if near unanimous support and multiple neighborhood councils and schools and religious institutions and, and businesses and everything else all want something and it's not a budget issue because the money's coming from the state and that's not enough, um, you know, where does that leave us as a city? And, and as Jonah says, how do, how do we work to help advance mobility if that's the status quo? Yeah. 
Well, I would say a, a few things. So first of all, take heart. Uh, that project would not have even been in the dialogue if it had not been for the work of all of the organizations that you just mentioned. That in and of itself is progress because the second thing that you accomplished or that was accomplished in the moment is that the council member um, had to make decisions in daylight, had to own those decisions and had to be transparent about them. Um, and that has not always been the case. I've done everything I can to make sure that, you know, elected leaders are the, if they are going to sort of assert themselves in that way, that they do it in a way that is clear um, to their constituents and they do it in a way that um, is not, is not opaque, right? That is, is in front in front of the, the outside the, the room where it happens and not inside the room where it happens. Um, and that is not always the case. And so I think that that is also, you know, sometimes you have to, um, you have to comfort yourself with the progress you've made. And the other thing you have to remember is that there are streets in every city that we come back to over and over and over again. Um, Telegraph Avenue in the city of Oakland uh, was a street where I was, when I was the bike and pet coordinator there, we were trying to put in uh, bike lanes down Telegraph Avenue. And I went to countless meetings with, uh, you know, a, a mix of really excited people and really angry people. Um, we got a grant, we did a trial run, we were gonna put the thing in and then the city got sued and the whole thing died. And that happened a few more times before it actually came to life. And now there is a protected bike lane on Telegraph in Oakland that is now extending up through the Temescal neighborhood and hopefully will connect um, with those lanes that go all the way to Cal um, in the city of Berkeley. Market Street in San Francisco is another one. Sometimes your job is to plant the seed for something that, um, but you don't, you you aren't necessarily the one that gets to be there to cut the ribbon or to see it happen. Um, and I think of Uplift Melrose as one of those projects. This project is one that you know there are a few sort of straw men that got put up um, as you know reasons not to support the project. And the long game is to get new elected leadership, and the short game is to knock down those straw men because the Caltrans money is not the only money that exists. And there are other ways to keep this project alive and keep it moving along um, without it, it dying off completely. So I would also just say, you know, take heart. This is a big city. There's 7,500 miles of streets. There are a lot of places that need desperately um, really effective organizing and advocacy to step into a vacuum and make sure that they get over the finish line. And so, you know, you're gonna win some, you're gonna lose some, don't take it personally. See that there were victories in the, what, what occurred. Um, and then, you know, on to the next. This feels like a therapy session. So thank you, you're making me feel <laughs> you're a little You're welcome. Little I've been better. doing this a long time, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a really uh, relevant question from Sarah, um, you know, Oftentimes communities that are the loudest um, get stuff first and oftentimes people don't have the luxury of being the loudest showing up at neighborhood council, city council meetings, et cetera. 
So what do you think we can do to ensure equitable access to all communities, whether or not they're the most vocal? So this is a great question, and it's one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, and, and Slow Streets was a, was a tricky one in particular because, you know, when I looked at the Black Lives Matter platform for, uh, for transportation in Oakland um, and then in, uh, you know, other places, there's a lot of things on that platform that we could be working together to advance, including free transit or things. Slow Streets isn't really on the list. Um, and it wasn't necessarily, I, I was extremely um, aware of the sensitivity of going into a community that was being disproportionately impacted by the virus uh, because it's a respiratory disease and these are communities that sit in the shadow of freeways. And so they have comorbidities um, because government, because, you know, LADOT even, uh, you know, made decisions um, that created those outcomes. And so for government to come in and try and just put things in, because that would be one way to handle this. Well, let's just go, let's roll out a map and let's make sure that we distribute these things equitably in a very top-down way. That struck me as really the wrong approach. But if the right approach was going to be to find community partnerships and sponsors and, um, and, and do things that way, then we needed to invest resources in making sure that uh, we solve for the problem that you're, that you're raising, Sarah. Um, that, you know, we, and we did. Um, we brought on board uh, KDI, um, which is a, a, a community-based sort of nonprofit consulting firm that had, had executed our Play Streets program, which is another sort of community-driven program that aims to you know, turn, uh, give kids who live in park poor neighborhoods access to play by turning their streets into playgrounds. Um, and so we brought them, they had already made a lot of those connections and had credibility relationships in exactly the neighborhoods that we knew um, would not come and ask us for slow streets or necessarily have the resources um, to, to sponsor them. And as a result, I mean, I think we're gonna be at about 50 miles of slow streets projects um, in the next week or so. And we have a, a, a majority of them, a large percentage of them that are in low, un, low income neighborhoods. Um, so I mean, I'm, I appreciate the question. It's a problem that I struggle with nightly. Like what is that right balance between a top-down approach um, that um, is, is heavy handed and a bottom-up approach that might benefit um, the people who know how to access, who know how to access resources and who understand how to get, um, get things from government. And so that was our solution, invest resources in um, a, a firm that could go out and help us fill that gap. I want to be respectful of your time. We have a few other great questions. Are you okay for a few more minutes? Sure. Okay. So um, this is, this, I found this personally really interesting um, because uh, Metro proposed as one of the options a shared bus and bike lane on this BRT project um, through Eagle Rock on Colorado Boulevard, which and that would remove an existing bike lane. Um, and so, you know, there's there's people that are brave enough to bike in a bus yeah. lane, but not everyone is. And right. so, would love to get your thoughts. It's a great question. 
So I am not, Bryn, I don't know if we've weighed in formally. I caught wind of this proposal. It's not something that I, that um, my staff has brought to me and sort of asked for, for my perspective on it. Um, but it, it, it does, you know, we had a similar challenge um, on Van Nuys up in Pacoima and, um, and into uh, Council District 7 and into Council District 6 where the, 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 the sort of options that we were getting were, they created what seemed to me to be a false choice um, between narrow sidewalks and BRT. And so we definitely, I mean, we invested a lot of staff time and energy in those designs and along with the planning department, who was a huge advocate of um, keeping the wide sidewalks um, to try and force the, the, force that conversation, that design conversation um, to move in a different direction. I mean, this is, um, so I guess you're saying that we could narrow the travel lanes and make it all work. Um, and that was that was part of the approach that we took um, on Van Nuys. And so I, you know, we are always going to advocate um, to try and keep those modes separate. It's very, very clear that um, if you are taking a systems approach to safety, which is a vision zero approach to safety, then the greater the volume speed and weight of the adjacent, you know, vehicles in the adjacent lane, the greater separation is required for vulnerable users. Um, and it's certainly, you know, through Eagle Rock, um, that, that has to be the case. I am, this is through 14, right? Yes. 14. So I'm really hopeful that we have a really progressive and a new advocate sitting in that seat um, I think that district is um, suffering from a lack of representation, and I'm hoping that uh, we can maybe figure out a way to to um, keep conversations like this one moving in the right direction when we have that leadership uh, on board. But I'll certainly go back and ask my staff if we if we've weighed in uh, yet or not, and see what we can do. This is a fun one. My favorite place to ride my bike in LA. So my favorite, uh, my favorite ride actually is down Sunset Boulevard. So I live in Silver Lake and my route to work is down Sunset Boulevard. And then I turn on Figueroa and then I turn onto Second Street and then um, I'm in downtown by headquarters. And I actually, I, I've been riding that route on and off since I got here in 2014. Um, and it just, I love it so much because I get to see so many different neighborhoods. I get to have eyes on the infrastructure. I get to see, uh, and, and my engineers hate it because I always come, come into the office and have several requests uh, for changes on that route. There's still that intersection at Figaro and Second that needs a, a better bike detector um, to trigger that arrow for example, but that's really my favorite, my favorite uh, route. And then my other favorite route is, man, wherever Ciclovia is happening, um, and it is, uh, you know, I, I have not missed very many of them since I've been here, and I, um, I just think that those events are, wherever they are, are one of the most special things about the city. 
Um, question from Luke regarding Senate Bill 288. Yeah, I thought that was really strange. Look, I appreciate the question. I thought that was really strange, his, his veto um, last time around. And I know that, you know, part of that was because I think, and you might know this better than I do, but the, the, the budget office, somehow somebody got the budget office to weigh in and say that it was going to, that bill was going to cost the state, you know, billions of dollars because um, it was projecting all kinds of crazy things. That it was 20 million per mile or some. Yeah, absurd. Thing. Yeah. I have not heard anything about 288 um, in that same way. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that, um, that he is going to sign it, but I I haven't heard much about that one. Question from Andres. Biggest challenge or roadblock you've encountered at LADOT? So I think that you, and I think you're asking here about inside the department, right? So um, there were two things. So the first thing was when I got here, uh, I was the, the eighth general manager in the last 14 years, right? So think about what that kind of turnover and executive leadership does to the morale of the people who work in the department. And the general manager who had preceded me um, had, uh, you know, the city was in a similar situation uh, that it is now, incredibly difficult budgetary uh, challenges and constraints and, um, and had made a lot of uh, very top-down decisions to, that kind of flattened the organization and it's not a secret that about 300 LADOT staffers marched over to city council and testified that they had lost faith in him and they wanted him fired and then the mayor fired him. So the morale when I got here, there was a flyer that was waiting for me on my chair my first day of work that had a picture of this, the, the um, Golden Gate Bridge and Mike Bloomberg because uh, Jeanette Sadiq Khan, who was working for Bloomberg Philanthropies, had been one of the people who had recruited me. So I had a picture of Mike Bloomberg and Golden Gate Bridge um, and some nasty little thing about like, uh, some, something about a San Francisco treat. I don't know, it wasn't nice. And so I, I knew that one of my biggest challenges was going to be um, convincing the people inside the department that I cared about them and that I was here and I was going to stick around and that I wasn't, I wasn't going to be shy about trying to push the envelope. I had a proactive agenda that I wanted to move forward, but that I was going to listen to them. Um, and then the second biggest challenge was that uh, there was an a engineer uh, named John Fisher. He actually still sits on the National Committee for Uniform Traffic Control Devices, and I think he might be live in Pasadena, but he is a longtime engineer at LADOT, and he really had set up this system of doing design that was almost like how you would build a widget in a factory, um, because he wanted to have sort of the absolute last word and control over every design that the, that the department issued. Now, some of the reasons for that were good, that you get consistency, you get, um, you know, an eye on, uh, you know, you get, you get a single person who gets to set the bar for the design. But the, the bad part is that nobody down the line is empowered to take ownership of their work. And they are also not necessarily um, understanding the value of every part of, you know, soup to nuts, 
from the moment that a project is a twinkle in somebody's eye to the, the time when you finished the evaluation of that thing and it's been in place for a year, um, that planners and uh, you know, people who, who are um, specialists in community outreach and people who understand sort of um, landscape architecture, beautification, greening, all of those skill sets are just as critical to the success of a project as the engineer who stamps the plans. And so trying to change that culture um, has been another, another challenge that I think we've made a lot of progress on, um, but it's a big bureaucracy and it is uh, culture change takes time. So both of those things I would, I would categorize as sort of culture change. Thank you. So very last question, and I'm sorry we couldn't get to everybody's. Um, want to end on this note. Uh, what do you want advocates to do to make your job easier? What, what could this community do, all very impassioned, smart people, to see real change in Los Angeles and uh, help you? Um, so first of all, you know, in, in my previous jobs, when, you know, in San Francisco that has an incredibly, you know, large, powerful advocacy organization in the San Francisco Bike Coalition. I also lived in Seattle for a few years with a consultant there and the Cascade Bike Coalition is another uh, kind of advocacy juggernaut. It was clear to me that um, the progress that is available to a city really requires uh, the professional layer of the city, that's who I represent, um, to be creative, open-minded, innovative, um, but also objective. It requires the political and elected layer of the city um, to be strong-willed and to have uh, the ability to withstand those peaks and valleys of change. And then it absolutely requires, on equal footing with those other two buckets, um, a credible and, and impassioned advocacy organization. And without that piece, that advocacy piece, there is a limit on, on, on what I, I'm going to be able to accomplish. You know, several years ago, um, you know, one of the hardest uh, things I've had to do in my career was go out to the west side of Los Angeles and remove a bike lane um, that we had put in because a 16-year-old girl um, had been hit and killed by a car going probably 50 miles an hour um, out by Dockweiler Beach. And I knew that, you know, we fought very hard in LADOT not to put that street back the way that it was, but everybody has a boss and my boss told me to take out the bike lanes. So I, and, and without, an, uh, you know, what we were getting was piles and piles of um, emails from, you know, the um, anti-road diet crowd. And there wasn't that force and that voice um, to say, no, this isn't right. And we're going to fight like hell um, to keep this bike lane intact. And so, you know, that was a hard lesson that without, I, again, am inside a system. There's a limit to the amount of advocacy I can do. There's a specific role that I need to play and I'm gonna do my damnedest to play it to the best of my ability, but there's, there is a, there's, a, there's a limit there. So that kind of street level advocacy, knocking on doors, email campaigns, organizing, getting people to show up, getting people to testify in transportation committee in front of council, 
getting people to apply pressure um, to council offices who um, have been able to escape accountability. Um, those things are the things that are incredibly useful and valuable to me, even though they can sometimes feel thankless to you. Um, they, they are an essential ingredient in, I think, what we're all trying to accomplish.